0: Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, Chicx are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket, so you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And Chicx bedding looks as good as it feels, colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try Chicx for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com.
1: This is the World According to Zig podcast for August 11, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. And I urge you to check out the Individual One podcast that is focused on news related to President Donald Trump, you can best access that through freespeechbroadcasting.com. A little bit later on in this edition of the World According to Zig podcast, I will give you all of the details from our week-long trip to Yosemite National Park for the Ziegler family. Lots of interesting things to discuss there, but as always is the case, there's lots of news as well. Some of that news bleeds from the Individual One podcast over to World According to Zig because we have to talk about uh, Jeffrey Epstein and uh, his apparent suicide in a federal prison while waiting uh, a trial for uh, all sorts of horrendous sex crimes. And uh, I have been um, (laughs) rather depressed, a little bit bemused, but mostly depressed and angry about the reaction of a lot of people, especially online, specifically on Twitter, and specifically our president of the United States, uh, Donald Trump. (laughs) But there's never been a president like President Trump. President- yeah, that's, that's for sure um, because of their reaction to the death of Jeffrey Epstein um, or Epstein. I guess it's Epstein, uh, whatever it is. Um, but anyway, the reality is he's dead. That's what we know for sure. Although there's some people I'm sure who are claiming he's still alive, that's the crazy uh, conspiracy uh, theory that uh, you know. There's all, all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories already out there. Uh, I am not a conspiracy theorist, although I often get misidentified as one. I'm the most ardent anti-conspiracy theorist you could possibly imagine. And so far, I'm in the anti-conspiracy category, a very small group of people who still have not lost their rationality when it comes to evaluating these kind of things. Uh, in fact, we're now in the very strange situation where the people who are in the category of, hey, uh, let's not lose our minds. Let's wait for the facts. Let's try to think about this logically And let's not jump to insane, nonsensical conclusions that include massive conspiracies without any damn evidence. Those people are now not only in the minority, they're so much in the minority, they get laughed at, right? I wrote a column today, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, outlining my reaction to the death uh, of Epstein. Uh, Or Epstein. I'm going to go with Epstein. Uh, Let's go with Epstein. So, uh, so my reaction to him, his death, is that okay. This looks suspicious. This should be looked into. It should be investigated. But the presumption of a conspiracy is, frankly, well, it's just it's just flat out ridiculous. Then what I mean by the presumption is that that seems to be the fallback position, the immediate knee jerk reaction of most people, including some semi-serious people, even people that are taken fully seriously in the news media. Uh, that, that's absurd. You don't conclude something that is inherently uh, highly I- improbable, a massive conspiracy. Humans are not capable of pulling off massive conspiracies without some evidence and at least a narrative that is semi-logical that makes sense throughout. And one of the many reasons why this doesn't make any damn sense is the nature of a federal prison, all right? (laughs) A federal prison is a very, very difficult thing to infiltrate. And there are cameras. There are checkpoints. There are security clearances. This is a situation where someone had gotten in uh, to Epstein's uh, cell, then we would know it. Very soon, if not already, okay? If, if, if he was murdered, there would be ample evidence that he was murdered. And by the way, uh, at least according to the reports, and of course no one wants to believe the reports that don't fit into their, their own personal narrative that makes them feel good, uh, he was hanged. Now, hanging is a very, very difficult thing to fake. Uh, any kind of autopsy is going to be able to tell you that it was a fake hanging, So if it was a fake hanging, then uh, we're going to know that. We're going to find that out. Unless you believe in the most massive, nonsensical, deep state conspiracy that could possibly be created. And of course, it should not go without being mentioned that all of this falls under Donald Trump's Department of Justice. (laughs) So we're now in the absolutely bizarro world situation where the president of the United States – is retweeting nonsensical conspiracy theories that implicate Bill Clinton in the murder of a sex abuser uh, under control of his own Department of Justice. You cannot be serious! I mean, but that's where we are. That's where we are. That Trump is effectively, in order to take a shot at Bill Clinton, his former friend, it should be pointed out, Went to his. He invited Bill Clinton and his wife to his wedding, and they came. He, he is implicating a former president in a murder with no evidence, and in a way that implicates his own Department of Justice for either being in on it or allowing it to somehow happen. And uh, I urge you to check out my column today for Mediate, uh, which you can find at FreeSpeechBroadcasting dot com for further details on why the whole thing makes no damn sense. Again, I want to make clear, I am always open to alternative scenarios. No one's more open to alternative narratives than I am. No one's more open to the conventional wisdom being wrong. But we're now in this incredibly strange situation where the conventional wisdom is, is only the conventional wisdom among a small minority of people, at least those of those who were commenting on it on social media. And specifically on Twitter, and including the President of the United States, Uh, and that's not healthy. And uh, and so I am open if you show me some evidence. Like I mean, if if you show me uh, you know evidence that some person that should not have been around uh, his cell ends up being there, whether it's through electronic. uh, uh, you know, key card type of evidence or video evidence or whatever it is, or eyewitness. My gosh, there are, there are lots of people around. You, it would be very difficult to do this without the entire federal prison being in on it. Uh, eventually, it's going to come out if anything like that happened. If there's evidence, it's going to be there. Now, and I have no faith in Bill Barr, the attorney general. To, to care about the truth, but this would be really difficult to pull off if something uh, dramatically untoward happened. And by the way, just to be clear, <laughs> the the one with the real power here is, is Donald Trump, at least through his Department of Justice and through Bill Barr. So if there was some sort of massive conspiracy, and there's certainly an incentive for Donald Trump for, for this story to go away because he had uh, as strong a connection to Ep- Epstein as, as maybe uh, as maybe Bill Clinton. That's, there's certainly an argument to be made either way there. But the reality is this. There's no evidence. And I'm an evidence guy. I'm a fact guy. I'm a make the story have some semblance of sense guy. And we're not there. So when something strange happens, you ask questions. You find out facts you try to put together a timeline and a storyline that makes some damn sense. You don't jump to Bill Clinton had him murdered or Donald Trump had him murdered. But that seems to be the reaction of almost everybody. And of course, shockingly, uh, liberals think that Trump had him murdered, so-called conservatives think that Clinton had him murdered, and there's no evidence of any of that. My guess is And I could be persuaded with actual evidence that this is very simple. He tried to kill himself previously. He was put on suicide watch, stupidly taken off suicide watch because this is going to shock people. But this guy was a con man who was able to fool people. And so uh, it's hardly a stretch. He was able to fool people into thinking he was no longer suicidal, right? (laughs) Wow. You mean he lied about whether or not he was suicidal? And then he may have lied to to people to create this narrative that he was a target so that after he killed himself he would be talked about forever as having been the victim of this massive conspiracy. You know, Jack Ruby did the same damn thing after he killed Oswald while in prison he he said, uh, "People, something to the effect that people will never know the the full reasons why I did this, or something to that effect." It was very cryptic, and that's gone down in history is Ah, Jack Ruby killed Harvey Lee Harvey Oswald as part of a massive conspiracy to silence him. No, I get that. That's. The way it looks, you know, the first two seconds that you examine a situation, then you look at the facts. And the facts are, as I have looked at that situation incredibly extensively, like a lot of other people have, and the overwhelming conclusion is that Ruby did that because he wanted to be a folk hero and kill the guy who killed John F. Kennedy. That's what happened. That's all that happened. There's overwhelming evidence that that's what occurred. And my guess is we're going to find out eventually that, that this was exactly as it appears to be. A suicide that should not have been allowed to happen. That's what occurred, in all likelihood. Again, barring evidence to the contrary, and I'm not trying to create, you know, a uh, a, a pun with the Bill Barr. There, the the, the reality is. We need evidence and a storyline that makes sense. We should not be jumping to nonsensical, conspiracy-laden conclusions. And so that's where I am on uh, that whole story. Now, uh, it, it, for some reason, and, and this is not by design, uh, the World According to Zig podcast is certainly this year has been uh, focused <laughs> almost exclusively <laughs> on uh, stories that have some semblance of connection to a sex abuse sto- uh, scandal. And uh, this week is once again no exception. We've already started out with one. But I, I want to mention that I wrote another column uh, detailing a story that I've mentioned before. And that is the whole Brian Banks uh, narrative. The Brian Banks movie came out this weekend. Now, I have not been able to check the numbers for how it did last night on Saturday, but on Friday, it did not do nearly as well as I'm sure was expected. It got well less than a million dollars in its first day at the box office. The movie is literally called Brian Banks. And for those of you who are not familiar, uh, I would urge you to once again go to com and check out my column that I wrote earlier this week, which in a rational world would have gone massively viral because here I am, a guy who has become known for better or for worse, for debunking false allegations of sex abuse against prominent people. That, you know, I I never intended that to be the case, but that's happened. Whether it's Michael Jackson or Jerry Sandusky, Joe Paterno, uh, who was obviously involved in the Sandusky situation, uh, Matt Lauer, Al Franken, there have been others, people I don't even like, Um, But, you know, that's what I've somehow become known for. And so here, the Brian Banks story in a nutshell is this is allegedly, according to the movie, the story of a black athlete here in Southern California who went to Long Beach Poly High School, football star, who was wrongly convicted of rape, and was later exonerated when his accuser recanted. And this is his story of redemption and how he ended up getting a tryout with the Atlanta Falcons and he got a job in the front office. I don't know if he's still in the front office with the Atlanta Falcons. Probably not because he's busy being a celebrity, being Brian Banks because he's got a book out and a movie called Brian Banks Out. And, and the liberals love this. They, they love this narrative because, after all, he's black. It goes against everything that Me Too supposedly stands for and all the new rules that Me Too have created, many of which I strongly disagree with. But that was that was my uh, take on on this movie was, hello, Me Too. Are we going to be consistent here? Because here's the, the biggest. There are many problems which I outline in this column with the movie. And I've been following this story for now seven years. When I first heard about it in 2012, I thought, wow, this is an amazing story. I totally bought in. And then I started to do this thing called research. (laughs) And I did a basic Google search, and I found articles that occurred back in 2002 when this actually occurred. And that's always key. I've already referenced the Kennedy assassination. It's amazing. When you go back, and I've done this, I have a, a copy of the the uh, Dallas Morning News the day after the Kennedy assassination, I will put the day-after version of the Dallas Morning News up against almost anything that's been written in the half-century sense, more than half-century sense, about the Kennedy assassination with regard to accuracy, the first accounts are not always right, but they're, they're, off, they're almost always incredibly relevant and usually uh, can lead you to where the truth is. And the first accounts of the Brian Banks story tell you an awful lot about uh, why this movie and why Brian Banks' uh, current account is not credible. In fact, he's changed his story with regard to whether or not he even had sex with this particular woman, uh, a woman by the name of Juanita Gibson. But the number one thing you need to know about this story, which the media will not tell you, is that, yes, Juanita Gibson, after Banks served his five years in prison, so Banks serves five years in prison for a crime he pled guilty to. Okay, now this this is another part of this whole thing that drives me bananas. We are very quickly... Moving to a world where not only like in the Michael Jackson case, does your testimony under oath at trial, like Wade Robson, not matter at all because you can just reverse it. Even if it's as an adult, you know, you're you're a very seasoned adult, you're a celebrity yourself, you testify emphatically under oath in front of God and the public and everybody, worldwide coverage, and you say nothing ever happened, and Michael Jackson's the greatest thing that ever happened to you, and then a decade later, you can totally change your story when your self interest is changed. When he's dead, you need money, you can't get anything from the Jackson estate anymore because they, they wouldn't uh, hire you to, to uh, do a job for the Circus Soleil show. Uh, and, and, and we're supposed to take you seriously. Well, Brian Banks pled guilty. Now, his story is that he was coerced into pleading guilty. Okay. I get that's possible. He's a teenager. Maybe he's naive. Maybe he had a really bad lawyer. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, as a black guy, he was in an area where he wasn't going to be able to get a fair trial because he's a big black football player and he's accused of rape. So this is going to be bad news for him. That's the narrative of the movie. None of that makes any damn sense. And here's why. Because first of all, his lawyer was a black female. His lawyer was a black female who went to USC, which, by the way, is not only a very good school, but happens to be the very same school that Banks was being recruited by, was expected to go to college uh, to play football. But that was obliterated because for the second time, which another thing the the movie and the media will not tell you, for a second time, regardless of whether or not it was rape, Banks had sex with a girl on campus. That's expulsion, as his own principal told me. Sean uh, uh, Ashley, I think is his la- Ashley is, is his last name. He's a, he's retired now, but he was the principal at the time. I spoke to him extensively. He said there was never any question that Banks at the time acknowledged he had sex with Gibson and. I know from multiple sources that this was the second time that this has happened, the first time with a woman who other than Gibson, that, which means he's gone. He's no longer in school. That means the scholarship is gone. The football career is gone, at least for the, in the time being, certainly at USC. And so back to his lawyer. So So we're supposed to believe this black, female, highly educated lawyer who two years after this becomes a judge in the Los Angeles area— she is so incompetent and so racist that she convinces—convinces, convinces, put up I created my own word there—she convinces Banks to plead guilty to something he didn't really do because five years in prison was the best he could possibly do. I'm sorry. I don't buy that. I just do not buy—and that is—and and, and I wish that everyone in the media understood that they are demeaning— and slandering uh, a black female attorney. I I mean, she's the the villain here. A black female attorney is the villain in this case because she coerces banks into pleading guilty to something he didn't do. So that's the first part of this that that contradicts the way the news media usually works and Hollywood usually works because you're not allowed to attack black females. I mean, she's a criminal defense attorney. She's trying to help Banks. Uh, she gets the presumption of, uh, of any doubt whatsoever. Well, not, be, not in this case, because we love the larger narrative of the black athlete overcoming racial injustice. So that's number one. Number two goes to the accuser herself, Juanita Gibson. Now, I don't know whether or not Juanita Gibson was raped by Brian Banks. Frankly, gun to my head, I would probably say no certainly not by the traditional uh, thinking of what rape is. Of course, it's hard to even know what rape is in this day and age. But it would not surprise me at all that, it, that Brian Banks truly believes he did not rape Gibson. The, now, but here's the thing. That's not, that, that is, while well, relevant, that does not exonerate Banks, nor does it make this movie truthful. Again, because one, we don't know for sure, but two, here's what we do know. Gibson was effectively a special needs. I don't know if she was technically special needs. I think she might have been special education, but according to her own lawyer, she was a very, and is a very simple person, very open to manipulation. And Banks, here's what occurs, Banks gets out of prison after five years There is contact made. Now, he says she contacted him via Facebook. I have never seen anything that proves that, but that's his story. Okay, I'm not able to disprove that. I'll accept it for the purposes of this discussion. She contacts him for whatever reason. That's certainly not consistent with a rape victim. I will 100% acknowledge that. And then they get together. And when they get together, he tapes her, her, and it doesn't appear as if she's even fully aware that she's being taped, but he tapes her on video saying that she was not raped by him. Now, this recantation is the key to Brian Banks' exoneration. When you look at the video, and there's a link to it in the column that I wrote for Mediate, this is not the recantation you would expect from a woman who is devastated that she put this poor guy in prison for five years, destroyed his life, ruined his football career in a false allegation. This is uh has all the uh, detail and emotion of someone answering a uh, phone survey. <laughs> yes, no, yes, no. I mean, that's what this is like. And that doesn't prove that it's not a true rank recantation, but it's not something that proves that it is either. Well, here's the other part that the news media will never tell you. Gibson was, was located by a local Los Angeles television reporter back in 2012 when this whole thing started to make news. And she told the reporter unequivocally that she is recanting her recantation and that Brian Banks offered her $10,000 to recant. Now, uh, based upon what I know of Gibson, that seems like a hell of a story for a quote-unquote very simple person to make up to a television reporter. Doesn't, it's not impossible, but that, that seems like a stretch to me. That's, that story sounds plausible, especially when Banks, when asked about it, which he never gets asked about it anymore because we've erased this from the record because it doesn't fit the narrative. When Banks gets asked about it, His denial is, that doesn't make any sense because I didn't have any money. Well, hold on a second. Uh, Were you smart enough, one, to either fool this easily manipulated person by lying to her and saying you're going to pay her $10,000 to recant, or were you smart enough, and by the way, Banks is a smart guy, were you smart enough to uh, realize where this thing was going? That if you get the recantation and you're able to uh, get your record cleaned, and you're legally exonerated, you you got a hell of a story on your hands. And that story has value. Now, he probably didn't anticipate, much like Colin Kaepernick didn't anticipate, that this kind of a scam was going to be so incredibly successful, and that liberals were going to be so incredibly gullible. He probably didn't anticipate it. But that doesn't mean that wasn't his motivation. It makes sense. It actually makes sense that he would realize the value, the value of her recanting was a hell of a lot more than $10,000 to him, especially now. I mean, let's, let's be clear where this ended up. Brian Banks not only got legally exonerated, had his record cleared, he got paid $142,000 by the state for a supposed wrongful conviction, He got a tryout with the Atlanta Falcons because of the publicity. He got a front office job with the Atlanta Falcons because of the publicity. He got a book deal because of the publicity. He got a movie made in his own name forever. His name is going to be associated with a movie that uh, exonerates him, allegedly, starring Greg Kinnear, including Morgan Freeman. I mean, so this worked out very, very well for him weirdly, this also worked out well in the short run for Gibson. And this is how I end the column, because this is the most mind-blowing part of this whole damn story. Here's what we absolutely know for sure. In 2002, Brian Banks and Juanita Gibson, while at summer school at Long Beach Poly High School here in Southern California, had some form of sex on campus. Gibson ends up getting paid a settlement over over a million dollars. Now, how much of that she got, I don't know but she got, gets over a million dollars. And I will say that the one element of this story that I've not been able to fully explore, but has my, uh, my radar, uh, you know, definitely picking up something's going on here. One of her parents, I can't remember if it's her mother or father, I think it was her mother, worked for the school district that paid her the settlement. Now, that Clearly played a role here in some way, shape, or form, whether in perception or in reality. That the school was more willing and more afraid of the story, so they pay her this massive settlement. uh, And certainly, you know, having a a parent who worked for the school district didn't hurt her in that situation. But she ends up getting paid over a million dollars. There's a judgment against her. Now that she, you know, for over that because of the false allegation, but she's never gonna be forced to pay that. The million dollars has already been spent. So she gets to spend a million dollars for whether whether the allegation was real or false, we'll probably never know. I don't know. I want to make that clear. I don't know whether that her allegation was real or not. But she gets over a million dollars. Banks becomes a semi-celebrity for life with a brand new career and a new lease on life and his, his record cleaned. And, and now he's, you know, he's got an entree into Hollywood and, and the NFL. So his life is a hell of a lot better than it ever would have turned out otherwise, unless he turned out to be a massive football star at USC. So this all worked out incredibly well for both of them. That's the part of this that is, is incredibly strange. But uh, so I, I write this column for Mediaite. And uh, and I start tweeting at those who are trying to promote the false narrative, and one of them is a movie critic for the Washington Post. And the 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 movie critic liked the movie and of course calls it a inspiring true story, blah blah blah. And I tweet my article at this uh, this critic for the Washington Post now my tweet, is, as it usually is, was sharp but respectful, all right? There was nothing disrespectful, certainly no profanity. It was all, you know, very much on the up and up. Hey, look, uh, you know, you probably should have done a Google search and talked to some of the people involved like I did before you wrote this because this movie's not true. Now, in a rational world, in a rational world, if the senior columnist at Mediate had done uh, several years of research into this movie and made a very credible case that uh, the narrative at the very least is questionable, if not false, and you just wrote a a glowing column uh, praising this movie as true, wouldn't you have at least an intellectual curiosity wouldn't you at least ask questions? Wouldn't you, uh, you know, in an ideal world, you might uh, direct message me on Twitter and say, hey, can we have a phone conversation about this? Or, you know, ask me questions via Twitter. Or, or you know, I'm not asking for you to, to immediately decide, oh, well, Ziegler said this, so it must be true. And I'm, I'm going to revoke my, my column praising Brian Banks. No, I'm not looking for that. I'm just looking for someone to be intellectually curious, find out what the truth is. You know what happened instead? The guy blocked me with no questions. Instant blocking of me on Twitter because I had the audacity to write a column and post it on his Twitter feed reacting to a bull, bull crap column he wrote praising the Brian Banks movie as an inspiring true story. That to me is the most important thing to take away from all this. Whether Brian Banks raped Juanita Gibson in the long run, I guess, isn't all that important, but what it exposes about the way that our media is broken, totally, 100% broken, especially in this realm, is really significant because it impacts all sorts of different events. And we're seeing it almost on a daily basis. And this didn't even surprise me. That's the part that's most depressing. It didn't even surprise me that he blocked me. I almost expected it because we're now in the era of narrative journalism. Don't mess with my narrative, buddy the truth doesn't matter. It's all about the damn narrative. And we like this narrative. We've decided as the media that Brian Banks is a hero. And this is an example of a black guy being screwed by the system, even if the facts don't back that up. And even if there's a completely different narrative that makes at least as much sense, if not more so, that does not include Brian Banks being a victim of any kind whatsoever. Then, uh, as the movie was coming out... And this gets us back to Michael Jackson. Everything, all roads lead back to Michael Jackson. Who ends up endorsing the Brian Banks movie via Twitter? But none other than Oprah Winfrey. That's right. Oprah Winfrey decides that she is going to endorse and retweet with comment what a great movie the Brian Banks movie is. And I'm thinking this cannot, wow, this really, is this really happening? You cannot be serious. I mean, really. Oprah Winfrey, who gets completely duped, although she may not have been duped. She may have been paid off, let's be clear. Um, Not directly with money, but with projects. Uh, she, She gets duped or willingly duped into believing this bullcrap fantasy movie, Leaving Neverland on HBO, about Michael Jackson's alleged sex abuse, which didn't happen, where she ends up being used to provide cover for the entire film. And that's what she was doing. And that's what she did very effectively. In the United States, She, for all intents and purposes, she cut off any criticism of the film at the knees because she sanctified it. She blessed leaving Neverland with this uh, hour-long, bogus post-game show where she quote-unquote interviews, the director, Dan Reed, and James Safechuck and Wade Robson, all of whom are not credible, in front of a room full of actual real child sex abuse victims using them as further cover. If the movie's really factual, you don't need any of this. The movie should be able to stand on its own. Instead, they needed Oprah. They brought her in as reinforcements because they knew the movie couldn't stand on its own. It's bogus. And and if if the media decided it was worthy of criticism, it would have collapsed. But with Oprah there, it's like a force field. So she was used as a force field to promote a bogus movie, making a false allegation of sex abuse against Michael Jackson. And an irony of all ironies, she gets duped by a movie called Brian Banks in the exact opposite direction, where she, again, it's a black guy. I found that interesting. I guess race in this particular case matters to her. It didn't matter with Michael Jackson. I guess Michael Jackson lost her blackness to him. But so so in the Brian Banks case, race matters enough to her where she gets duped, into believing someone was exonerated, when I truly believe if Oprah Winfrey knew the details as I just laid them out, she would never have touched this. I mean, she's not that dumb. She's not a dumb person. I think she can be evil at times, and I don't think she should be trusted, and she's been wrong a lot. She's been duped a lot. Just ask James Fry, that fraudulent author that fooled her many years ago, and that's one of numerous situations where she's been duped. I mean, her credibility should be crap. but instead she's still a goddess in the media's eyes, and that's why this matters. So she endorses the Brian Banks movie, which to me just makes this whole thing go full circle and shows what a fraud the whole deal is and how broken the media is and why Oprah should not be trusted on any of this. It also shows, though, that the essence of the media's uh, love of Oprah Winfrey is so antiquated and no longer relevant because this woman, based upon at least Friday night's box office receipts, has no real power anymore. I mean, she endorsed this movie I think I guess it was on Thursday, uh, and uh, it might have been Friday, whatever it was and there's no evidence at all that anybody went to go see the movie based upon her endorsement. Her endorsement apparently means nothing, even in a realm where she's considered to be, wrongly, an expert, which is sex abuse, since she's a sex uh, abuse victim herself, and in the realm of race, because race is obviously a huge part of the Brian Banks story, and she's obviously a black female. So that's the real story out of all this. Oprah Winfrey has once again been exposed as not only being easily duped and wrong. Constantly, but having no real power over an audience. So, that to me, everything in this realm is the opposite of what it appears to be. The world is totally upside down, and this whole Brian Banks thing is a classic example of that. One other note on uh, the ongoing saga of leaving Neverland I got approached this week by James Bourne, who is the lead singer for a couple different rock bands, including one called Busted. Uh, He's originally from uh, the United Kingdom, uh, very well known internationally, lives most of the time here in Los Angeles, and he's a big Michael Jackson fan. And he asked me to come on the podcast so that he could express his opinion on leaving Neverland. I said, well, can we talk on the phone? We did so. We had a very nice conversation. Seems like a great guy. He's very knowledgeable about the case. He's been outspoken on Twitter. Uh, with his criticisms of leaving Neverland and his defense of Michael Jackson. However, um, we couldn't schedule it for this weekend because he was busy today. And uh, I'm not 100% sure we're ever going to be able to schedule it because he left it by saying, well, I need to check with my bandmates to see whether or not they'll all sign off on me being public in an interview in my support of Michael Jackson. And I haven't heard from him since. Now, I don't know James, so maybe there's reasons for that. But in my experience, generally that means someone has decided, eh, you know what, maybe this isn't a great idea. Uh, I don't know that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait for James to tell me that directly, uh, but um, that is certainly possible based upon the current uh, state of the evidence. But regardless, it was interesting, interesting on two levels. One, that Bourne wanted to have his voice uh, heard on this and very strongly believes that Michael Jackson has been railroaded uh, on a factual basis. He's a fan, but he's looked into this very deeply and, and is very well versed in the facts. And then, uh, assuming that this, my instincts are correct, it's also interesting uh, that uh, it's just too toxic for him to be willing to go ahead and uh, voice his opinion, uh, even on a podcast. Uh, also related to this, of course, this is always looming in the background, at least with my interpretation of this subject matter. There have been a couple of developments in the Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky case in what should have been, in what should have been. This is so class such a classic example of timing being everything in life. But this should have been a massive news story that should have, in a semi-rational world, forced the news media to revisit a large part of at least the so-called Penn State cover-up, which is totally bogus because there was nothing to cover up. But that's partially why the cover-up Uh, looked as bad as it did because they were dealing with an innocent guy. And when you look at uh, the past through the prism of this guy being the worst serial pedophile in the history of Pennsylvania, all of a sudden your actions look exponentially worse than they really were. They knew they were dealing with an innocent guy. They still, the people involved, know that they were dealing with an innocent guy. They're just not able to say that publicly because it's so toxic, although one of them has done so, one of the Penn State administrators has done so in an interview that I did with him uh, last year, which we've not yet made public because uh, of legal concerns that hopefully will eventually be alleviated, but it's a blockbuster interview that also in a rational world would make huge news, but will not, much like what happened this week, which is that we learn that, get this, Louis Free, the former FBI director, the the guy who uh, did the highly acclaimed by the moronic media, free report looking into the entire Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky matter, who concluded that there was this massive nonsensical cover-up at Penn State with no actual evidence, but it didn't matter because the media wanted that narrative. They wanted to be able to justify what they had done to Joe Paterno. They had the pom-poms out cheering for Louis Free, and he gave them, he gave his employers, Penn State, the Board of Trustees, which also needed an excuse for what they did to Joe Paterno and and the Penn State administrators. He gave his employers, he gave the media exactly what they wanted, exactly what Penn State paid for. The number one thing people do not understand about the Penn State uh, case is that the incentives are all upside down. People think that somehow Penn State had an incentive to defend themselves. No, 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 no. They had an incentive to implicate themselves because it's not their money. The people being... Uh, potentially at risk here, it's not their money. The members of the board of trustees, they want to justify their firings. They want to justify the fact that they, they're getting blamed for killing Joe Paterno. They need an explanation and they need, uh, you know, they need a, a narrative that's going to get them off the hook for the dumbest decision ever made in the history of the school in a panic. And so it's not their money. It's not their money that they paid free. It's not their hundred-plus million dollars that they paid off bogus accusers of Jerry Sandusky. In fact, they're getting complimented by their colleagues and the media for, for paying all this money, other people's money, at a liberal, state-run, academic institution. So Penn State has no incentive defending themselves. They, they actually have an incentive in implicating themselves. I'll never forget... When I went to cover the first Penn State football game, after all this happened, the following season, at home, there was a problem with my press pass. I have no idea why there was a problem with my press pass, but I talked to the athletic director. I'm sorry, not the athletic director. The the sports information director. The sports information director, a guy who had worked with and for Joe Paterno and Tim Curley. The two, two of the guys that got fired in this whole thing had been very loyal to them. This guy I had a conversation with, and he asked me about the documentary I was working on, and I said, I'm the guy trying to prove you guys didn't cover up for a pedophile. I will never forget the rest of my life. He says to me, totally without irony, totally without sarcasm, that doesn't help me at all. That doesn't help me at all. In other words, he's on the other side now. Penn State doesn't want that gun to be implicated. So that's the number one thing you need to understand about that whole case, because everything flows from that. Well, we learned this week that Louis Frieden didn't just please his employers, didn't just please the media. He pleased his future employer, the NCAA. Louis Free is now working for the NCAA, which used his findings to, in record time, institute draconian, unprecedented penalties against Penn State, which were later revoked because they didn't stand up in court. But we, there were emails, and this is how the pro-paternal people in the Penn State situation butchered this this whole thing from A to Z, largely because they were naive, they didn't know what they were doing. They had too much faith that the system was eventually going to work itself out. But Anthony Lebrano, a guy I know exceedingly well, we no longer get along, but this is, this is a guy who actually called into the Glenn Beck show to praise my work uh, uh, just a couple of years ago and to to uh, uh, um, substantiate suspicion about Jerry Sandusky actually being innocent based upon the documents that he has exclusively. Uh, But Anthony Lebrano had evidence that Louis Free had said in emails that this was his goal in the Penn State probe, to show the NCAA that maybe they should hire him full-time. This was an audition, and it worked. He got what he wanted. Everybody got what they wanted. The NCAA got what they wanted. Free got paid off. Free got paid by the Penn State Board of Trustees. They got the result they wanted. The media got what they wanted. Not a conspiracy. Everyone acting in their own damn self-interest. And there was proof of this years ago when it might have still mattered. And LeBrono sat on it. And now it's actually come to fruition and no one gives a shit. But that's the world we live in. No one gives a shit. Uh, So, um, you know, timing is everything in life. There's uh, another element of this whole story, which I've alluded to uh, in the past, and I wanted to just uh, further substantiate that in September, I am now confirmed that there is going to be a major book by a highly respected author whose name I... A lot of people have figured out who this is, but I do not feel comfortable divulging this yet because I don't want to do something to screw it up or to put them in some sort of jeopardy. But there's going to be a major book by a highly respected author that devotes a chapter to this subject. And based upon my conversations with that person, uh, and specifically a conversation I had this week with that person, it's going to blow apart the Penn State cover-up story. And it's going to raise significant questions about Jerry Sandusky's guilt. I don't think it's going to go nearly as far as I would because no one's that dumb uh, to go into that level of a toxic story, especially when you have a lot to lose like this particular author does. And uh, he told me that um, I should be pleased, uh, that my work is uh, is cited and complimented, and, and that um, I believe, although I'm not 100% sure on this, I believe that one of my key findings, which is that the date of the so-called Mike McQuarrie episode, which was the essence of the whole story, both the cover-up and Sandusky's guilt, because without that, you have no story at all. You have nothing. You have no criminal charges. You have, there's nothing. There's, there's nothing there without McQuarrie. That the date, the real date of the Mike McQuarrie story is still six weeks off, and that there was a six-week gap from the time that this episode occurred, the Mike McQuarrie witness, which was a big nothing burger. And when he went to Joe Paterno, the day after the job he wanted opened up. And that's what really happened here. And I am told that that's going to be at least cited in the book. Uh, So I'm I'm very, very, very realistic in my expectations for what will happen. I'm just looking for for somebody to give somebody a foothold of some semblance of traction to at least say, hey, can we look at this? That's all I'm looking for. That's all I want. Uh, Whether that's going to happen, I don't know, Uh, but at least there's a glimmer of hope uh, for that to occur in September. As I mentioned at the top of this hour, uh, this past week, Uh, The Ziegler family went to Yosemite National Park, my wife's favorite place in the world. She's been going there most of her life. We've not been able to go there the last two years, one because we had a baby, Diana, and then last year there were all these wildfires in Yosemite which prevented us from going. I want to mention a couple things I think you might find uh, of interest or or at least uh, somewhat humorous. Um, My daughter, Grace, who's been on this show Uh, Several times. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? You remember her. She's growing up very fast. I am the leader. Do as I say. Uh, She's seven years old now. And, boy, she goes from one obsession to the next. I mean, she... (laughs) She really – I guess this is natural, but I think she's probably in the in the upper echelons of percentages when it comes to uh, seven-year-olds who become obsessed with particular subject matters or television shows or whatever it is. And just before we went to Yosemite, she became totally obsessed with um, – I don't know what you would call these mythical creatures uh, – the Loch Ness Monster, the Abominable Snowman, and Bigfoot. She's really into the whole Bigfoot thing, which I have told her I don't believe in. There's no evidence of it. But I'm all in favor of her investigating on her own and figuring out uh, whether there's any actual evidence that Bigfoot exists. So, I mean she's obsessed and she uh, decides that she's going to bring her uh, magnifying glass, this very cool pink magnifying glass with blinking lights, uh in case she finds some evidence that Bigfoot exists because there's, you know, Yosemite is the kind of place where Bigfoot might exist and there's been a couple of alleged sightings in Bigfoot. In fact, we found a video online of some kids clearly faking a Bigfoot sighting that she found very very compelling uh in Yosemite. So, uh the so The first night we're in Yosemite, and Yosemite is always a very big uh, conflict for me because I know how much my wife loves it, and I like Yosemite, but it's like going to Mars. It's really like going to Mars because for me, a guy who is constantly connected to the news and my phone and the internet and the world that's going on around me, you have no access to any reliable internet or cell service for a full week. And the worst part about it is you're not even 100% sure that's the case because sometimes some fluke will happen and all of a sudden your phone will work for 15 minutes. Well, anyway, the one time when it's semi-reliable that your phone might work is very early in the morning. So I get up super early, like 6 a.m., the first, night, or first day we're there. And uh, one, to check my phone, and two, while I'm checking my phone to see if it works, I decide to create some fake Bigfoot footprints to see how Grace will react. And I do a really good job of creating these fake Bigfoot footprints. And uh, Grace eventually wakes up, and uh, she goes out, and I kind of lead her in the direction of the fake footprints, and she sees them, and she completely freaks out. I mean, freaks out to an extraordinary degree that I had never anticipated to the point where for the rest of the vacation, she is hesitant to even going on a walk uh, in the evening with her mom in- into the uh, foresty areas. Now, part of this could be an act because she's an actress, uh, but there's definitely something real about it. So finally, on the last day, um, I uh, there was there were actually three sets of footprints that I had created. One of the sets of footprints she never finds. And the last day we stumble across the third set of footprints. And once again, she starts to freak out. And at this point, I said, OK, you know what, uh, Grace? Uh, you know what those footprints look like to me? they look like the footprints of somebody's daddy who got up really early in the morning to try to fool their daughter that there's actually a Bigfoot. And what was fascinating was that instantaneously, I mean, instantaneously, her entire mindset changed. She went to being freaked out and frightened to laughing and mocking me for being stupid enough to wake up that early to put out fake Bigfoot footprints. Not only that, what was really interesting to me is that she instantly then put all these other pieces together that the other footprints had been faked as well, because why would I have led her on a walk towards those footprints? That was fascinating to me, that, that once she got over the block and the fear uh, of there not actually being a f- Bigfoot in the immediate area. <laughs> she was all of a sudden able to see everything very clearly, and I'm the guy who ends up getting mocked. The dad's stupid enough to actually give his daughter what she thought she wanted, uh, but I guess that's a large part of what being a dad is all about. Uh, Diana, for her part, our two year old, was wow, was she a piece of work? She um, loved Yosemite and. Uh, And I think the most interesting story about her was the first night that we were there. Boy, she was jacked up. I mean, she was so jacked up. We were all in one room. We're in this little cabin in Yosemite National Park, and you know, we're four of us are there, and she's in her little pig pen. And Grace immediately goes to sleep because she's exhausted. But Diana starts doing what sounds like a stand-up routine. I'm not exactly, in fact, it wasn't really a stand up routine. You know what it sounded like? It sounded like a John Ziegler podcast where she's just talking and talking and talking. No one's talking back to her. She's laughing at times. She's angry at times. She's sad at times. But she's just, she's using all of her material. She's bringing all of it out. I mean, she's two years old. She's got a really good vocabulary for two, but she's only two. And so, I mean, she's bringing everything she has at. She loves singing. She loves humming. It's really ominous, though, that one of the things that she loves humming is "bum bum 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 bum." bum. The Darth Vader. So, this is, so, we're my wife and I are sitting in the dark room with our two-year-old humming the theme to Darth Vader, and so we're, we're so screwed. So. So, after literally, I'm not exaggerating, an hour and a half of this stand up routine from Diana, where she's just going on and on and on, my wife, who's half angry and half laughing, gets up and, as much as she can scream at her without waking Grace up, says, Diana, you shut up. And literally, after half a beat of silence in the dark, we hear from Diana, You shut up. <laughs> Ah! We're so screwed. We're so screwed. This is our two-year-old with no irony, no laughter. Mom, you shut up. This is my show. Thankfully, uh, as the week went on, uh, the stand-up routine, the the, uh, the time period in which the they took place every night, diminished a little bit, uh, and we were able to get some sleep. But Diana had a great time. And then uh, finally, whenever I go to Yosemite, one of the things I'm very cognizant of are the impacts of alleged global warming, right? I mean, we're supposed to be in uh, an ever-warming period of time. Uh, We were told in 2016 by the governor of California, Jerry Brown, that we were in a permanent drought requiring uh, permanent water restrictions. And and that's the very same year I'll never forget. it, the Los Angeles Times wrote an article about Yosemite National Park, and people need to understand Yosemite is the literally the epicenter of California's environment. I mean, everything literally flows from Yosemite. We get our water most, a lot of it from the snowpack in the Sierra Mountains just above Yosemite. So you know, you think of Yosemite as kind of like the Garden of Eden. It's the it's where everything begins in. California's environment, especially with regard to water. So if there's a drought or if there's global warming, Yosemite is literally the first place you're going to see it. And the LA Times wrote this article where the new normal in this era of permanent drought for California is that in August and maybe even July, you're going to see no waterfalls in Yosemite. And I, and I made a note of that. I tweeted it at the time. And I said, okay, this will be interesting to see how this works out. And, of course, even that year, even that year, it wasn't true. Now, the waterfalls were very low, but there were still waterfalls into August 70. But this year in August, they were at full throat because we had a massive amount of snow this past year, almost record amount of snow in the Sierra Nevada. And here we are a year after massive wildfires, a couple of years after supposed permanent drought, and I got to tell you, there has never been a better August in my wife's life when she's been going there for 40 years from an environmental standpoint. The waterfalls were at full throttle. The temperature, by the way, not that this proves anything, was remarkably low. Uh, usually, you're in the 100-degree range in Yosemite National Park in August. We never got above ninety ninety one 91 uh, any day during the week. Uh, the recovery from the wildfires has been amazing, and my point here is, you know what? Nature has an, a remarkable ability to correct itself, and things are cyclical, and it is very dangerous to presume cycles mean long-term impact. And to me, I believe that the massive amount of the global warming hysteria is based upon extrapolation of a data set that is way too small. We're talking about climate being thousands of years. And of course, Yosemite National Parks Valley is a creation of global cooling and global warming. The valley was created by a giant glacier 30,000 years ago that melted 10,000 years ago. How did that happen? It happened via global warming, (laughs) right? So uh, to me, it doesn't prove a damn thing and no one will ever be convinced because this is the way the world works. Of course, the irony is, the hypocrisy is, the other side... If I had come back with pictures from previous trips showing how diminished the waterfalls are or how much worse the environment is in Yosemite today than it was several years ago, those pictures, as I did post them on Twitter, you can find them on my Twitter feed, Sigmund Freud, those pictures would have probably gone viral within the liberal community because that's what they do all the time. It's easy to do that in a world as vast as our earth. You're always going to have situations where a few years ago, well, you know there was this amount of ice pack or this amount of snow or this amount of water, and this year, year there's less. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean it's the same everywhere. Things are cyclical. You're gonna—it's—it's it's the natural course of climate. The climate is always changing in a micro way, but in a macro way, it stays pretty much the same, except over exceedingly long periods of time. And Yosemite Valley is the perfect example of that. So I got mocked when I put out photos saying, boy, things look aw- awfully awesome in Yosemite Valley and in Yosemite National Park, even though that's the place that should be showing it if we're really on the verge of catastrophic global warming. But people just don't get it. They don't, they don't use their brains. And to me, this whole thing, this hysteria, I'm all for a good environment. But this hysteria is, is smacks of religion to me. That's what it feels like. It's religion disguised as science, and uh, our trip uh, to Yosemite National Park was certainly consistent with that. But anyway, we had a good time, and uh, I tweeted some uh, photos of that if you want to check those out at my Twitter feed, Zygmunt Freud. One last uh, thing to note, Tiger Woods uh, withdrew from the first playoff event on the PGA Tour this weekend, and boy, oh boy, you know... I know I've gotten a lot of uh, and justifiable criticism for having written off Tiger Woods before. Uh, I did so in 2000 and uh, I think it was 14 at the uh, PGA Championship at Valhalla in Louisville where I wrote a, a front-page story for the Louisville Weekly newspaper burying Tiger Woods. That turned out to be correct for several years. And then, of course, late last year and early this year, he made one of the most amazing comebacks in the history of sports – Of course, winning the Masters in April, which was the sports highlight of this year, if not this decade, if not so far this millennium, uh, certainly in the realm of golf, if not sports. And no one has more respect for what Tiger has done in coming back than I do as a longtime Tiger fan turned critic back to a fan and a longtime tournament golfer. But I got to tell you, ever since the uh, Masters victory, he has shown every sign of uh, that Masters victory having been a dead cat bounce. Or a dead tiger bounce, because uh, it has been unbelievably bad, and not just bad in the sense of he's off his game, he's tired, uh, you know, he's men- mentally spent. I mean, he just doesn't look like he has it. And we're now four months later, and you know, he's withdrawing from major tournaments uh, because of injury. It was presumed he was going to pick himself as a Presidents Cup pick since he's the captain of the U.S. Presidents Cup team later this year. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. And uh, we might be seeing the real end uh, uh, of Tiger Woods. I mean, sure, I'm, I'm hoping he's not going to retire. I'm hoping he'll still be competitive. Uh, but the idea uh, that he's ever going to be able to win multiple majors and catch Jack Nicklaus, to me at this point, is is just a pure fantasy. I even bought into that fantasy shortly after the Masters victory. Maybe it was possible. But I think we're going to look back at the Masters win earlier this year as very much the same thing that occurred with Jack Nicholas when he won the 1986 Masters in that miracle. He never won again after that. Uh, he did. Com- he contended at times. In fact, he contended – many, many years afterwards as a, as an old man, never super seriously, but enough to get the juices flowing. Uh, and that might be where we are with Tiger Woods. I hope not, but it certainly looks like that. Uh, and that might be the best case scenario based upon uh, the, the circumstances of his injuries looking forward. All right, that'll do it for this week's edition of the World According to Zig podcast. Please make sure you check out the individual one podcast, where uh, I go into all the news regarding uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Please make sure that you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, or what have you. And also do yourself a favor, and if you're one of those people who sleeps, when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to these important messages. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep?
0: Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should. Oh, I don't know. try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheik's. S H E E X. Sheik's. Try Sheik's for 30 nights risk free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.